Hey, this is Alex with a quick note. Our guest for this week had to leave suddenly, so he dropped out about halfway through the episode and then appears at the end. I just didn't want anybody to think anything bad happened to him. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new coverage for Pem Pem Pals. Uh, this time, we're covering Gundam The Origin, uh, Rise of the Red Comet. Uh, that's a subtitle you may or may not find on the version that you're watching, because it is available in two different formats, like a television format and a prestige format that's like an hour per episode. Uh, we're mostly going to be watching the prestige format, and so... Uh, hopefully you can follow along with us there. Um, my name is Alex, and as always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. This is Brian. Hey, and I'm Ben. And we're all very excited to welcome a brand new guest today, Mr. John Goodman. Hey. Our first celebrity, right? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea John Goodman was such an anime fan. Donnie, you're out of your element. Yeah, it's really yeah, exciting yeah. to have him on our show. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the Jonathan, but okay. Today, we're going to be covering the first episode uh, entitled Blue-Eyed Castfall. But before we get straight into that, uh, I just wanted to ask, as we do all of our guests, what uh, uh, experience, if any, do you have with anime? Do you have any formative works that you enjoyed when you were younger? Uh, is this kind of your first time dipping into anime in a while? Yeah, this is the first time digging into Gundam. I, I, I've never really been a huge anime fan i feel it's cliche but I, I i really got into the whole ghost in the shell stuff and, and i really ate that stuff up so much so that I, i've watched all of the various uh, ghost in the shell episodes even the, the ones with the crappy animation oh my gosh with the little spider tanks that have like childlike personalities yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anything that kind of has has a cyberpunk kind of slant you know there was another one that i watched a while back that i really got into it was really philosophical. It was um, Ergo Proxy. Mm. I really liked that one. You know, and I've always been into like the Neil Stevenson stuff. Oh, gosh. I love him. Snow Crashed. Yeah. I'm in Dade. Yeah, all of that stuff. Just anything freaking cyberpunk, sci-fi. I bet you a Snow Crash movie or like series will come out in the next 10 years. Like, I can't believe they haven't done that yet. I know, right? Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, Snow Crash, uh, highly recommended to Brian or anyone else uh, watching or listening. It is kind of a new generation of cyberpunk, which deals with the inception of nanotechnology and mm. the internet as a virtual uh, environment okay. like people don't just log on anymore they goggle in yep um, that's likely where we're headed though right to a metaverse absolutely yeah i mean my kids are more into that than i am and i can't pry their oculus away from them like <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i don't know if i'm ready to try that stuff i think it's dark magic yeah. <laughs> that's awesome john you've you've been doing uh your subcarrier work for quite a while yeah, man. I, you know, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass you, dude. Uh, you're, oh, you're the, you're the reason why I got started with this stuff. Brian and I are cousins. Nepotism. I know. That's. Uh, so I, you know, Brian and I have known each other for a very long time, and I remember when we were kids, he he was getting into music production, and I just thought, oh my god, this guy's the coolest guy ever. I want to do this oh, too. <laughs> this so, is not why I brought John. Yeah, on I know. Show. I'm <laughs> Get out of you right now. But yeah, oh, and so Brian started this, and like 
I remember going back to New Mexico and thinking, fuck, man, how can I get my own synthesizer? And I, I legit called musician's friend. Can you finance a synth for me? They're like, no, you're 14. Go get your parents' signature. Get out of here. And then like, I, I got older, got a job, had a family. And I said, I'm buying some gear and I'm going to do it myself. It's sort of my little personal vanity project, I guess. Nobody nobody listens to my shit, so. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> anyway. I, I well, just stick it out there like, yeah, here it is. Take it or leave it. I don't know, whatever. Uh, yeah, and for our listeners out there, both Brian and John have conspicuously framed uh, synthesizers in their shots. So, <laughs> uh, repping that. Yeah, uh, John, John's got some some analog synth going with all the you know wires plugged in. <laughs> Very cyberpunk. Be- yeah, speaking of that, if you guys ever go watch, there's a guy Richard Devine. Just look him up on YouTube, and he's got some really futuristic videos of him just doing all the wires and shit with his modules and, and it looks like a cockpit of a freaking spaceship yeah he's one of the uh, godfathers of electronic music i think yeah so this episode starts with a real banger of an action scene right i mean it's very fast but it uh has these Kodak moments, you know, where the action stops for just a second so you can see the ramifications of what's happening and then boom, it's off to the next thing, which I think really speaks to like what they're really trying to convey that uh, this new application of military technology is accelerating the speed at which battles are fought. We start with the Battle of Loom, right, which is the first major conflict in what will become known as the One Year War. And we follow uh, Char Aznabal, and he's piloting his brand new Zaku 2 command model. It's got a little crest on it, and it's colored red. And that's how you know it's different or better than the other Zakus, right? Brian and I had talked about this a little bit when uh, he first introduced me to the series. The the series kind of, or the uh, a lot of the concepts in the series are allegorical of the increases in technology of World War One, and so previous to World War One, the size of weaponry had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. First, it was if we want to go way back, like chariots, and then it was uh, ships, right? And then as the ships got bigger, that was how you gained supremacy on the battlefield. But eventually, that technology. Uh, curve started to make everything go smaller again. And in World War I, we get our first usable combat plane. And these combat planes are much, much smaller than the the previous tactical supremacy uh, vehicle, which was uh, still a battleship. And we see this kind of personification of that idea or illustration of that idea where there are these giant cruisers just firing cannons at each other. But the thing that turns the tide of the battle is these much, much smaller, much faster vehicles. It would be planes in World War One, but in this, it's these mobile suits. Just to like jump back for a second. So we start with this cold open, right? And it's a space battle. You know, as as a novice coming to this series, like what are even kind of the two sides or or what's what's going on here, right? And then and then also this is kind of a a cold open and then we flash back in time for the the rest of the main episode. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the cold open 
it just makes me think about how each generation is like introduced to war, right? So the first thing you see is uh, the grand scale of things and the drama, the hardware, masses of people. And, you know, when, when I was a kid and first learning about history and finding out about wars, that was like high entertainment, right? Because it's the stuff of film and television. And then eventually your toys, you're playing with, with your buddies. And that's what I kind of feel with the cold open of this episode. Like, whoa, look at all this like dazzling action and the choreography. And oh, look at this guy. He's like the Red Baron, uh, but he's the Red Comet. Uh, he must be the hero. <laughs> but, you know, this childlike perspective is like quickly going to mature. Um, actually with the very next scene, I think. Yeah. Uh, so the two sides of the conflict are the Federation forces and the Federation forces are, uh, uh, they are the governmental power of Earth and the fairly new space colonies, right? And the opposing side, the green ships, are the forces of Z the newly minted nation of Xeon. Formerly it was called Moonzo and we'll get into that as we, as we flash back. Um, but the Xeon forces are technically fighting for independence from the Earth Federation government forces. And the Earth Federation is highly reminiscent of American forces and especially the British forces at the time. So let's set up a little bit more context like for the discussion in addition to the show. Uh, so Alex and I have seen most of the Gundam content dealing with this timeline, the Universal Century, and have seen a lot of anime in general. Uh, so John, you've already established that uh, you're brand new to Gundam, so this will be your first time seeing anything Gundam. And Ben, is that yeah, yeah, pretty close to to brand new. Watched a little bit of Wing when I was like 13 or something, but have no memories of it. Yeah, that's kind of cool to me. So I'm very interested in hearing how John and Ben that your perspectives will either be similar or contrast with me and Alex. For one, I'm very confused from watching <laughs> it. There's a lot going on. Okay. There's a lot yeah. of characters and and I and just a lot like crammed in there. And and that's kind of one thing I was curious about is like, are all these characters new for you guys as watchers of Gundam? Or are you like, oh, this is how like this person got their start. And you know, these are supposed to be kind of like known entities to to Gundam fans. Yeah, it's going to be the latter for me. When I experienced it, it was a lot of the former. I was familiar with the basic storyline of uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, but I did not actually watch through the entire series. And so I was being introduced to a lot of these characters for the first time. Yeah, this 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 was net new to me. You know, like I said, uh, I'm a, I am was a big sci-fi fan, and so I, I've been kind of following the whole Expanse thing. And... And while I didn't dig into the characters like you guys have, I, I was kind of surprised at how similar, you know, ex the expanse is compared to this, at least in the setting of the story. I think, Alex, like you said, you have Earth, which is kind of the central governing body, and then you have the colonies in, in space, right? And I just wonder how much James S.A. Corey borrowed from Gundam. Because if, if you look at the Expanse series, you, again, you, you kind of have this Earth is a governing body. It's sort of the, the UN. The, the difference is that in the Expanse, Mars had been coloni colonized. And if we were to map Earth to, to uh, countries, right? I mean, Earth is kind of like the US, kind of imperialistic. And then maybe Mars is kind of like China. 
But then, you know, you, you have the space dwelling folks who live in the belt. So in, in the expanse, you have the belters, right? And the, the belters take a very working class kind of attitude towards things. They're, they're kind of anarchistic and they, they resent Earth. They resent the people living down the well, hmm. the gravity well. That's kind of what I picked up on from this is now, now you have the new types living, living in space who are sort of evolving, I guess. And then, and then you've got the Earthers. Yeah. One thing, I don't know if I kind of missed something while I was watching it, but um, the fact that they weren't on Earth, like I kind of thought that they were on Earth for most of the, mm. the first episode. And then they talk about like going to Earth and it was like, huh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess they're not on Earth. Like what's going on? And then, uh, and then kind of like the, the reveal of like where they've been when they leave at the ship at the end, I was like, this is mm-hmm. like a cool moment. But that's kind of cool oh. though. Like I never really thought about that moment at the end as a reveal, but that would have been really cool to experience it that way. Yeah. But you guys bring up two interesting things. Ben had also uh, remarked on the similarities of the basic premise to The Expanse, right? Which I- I'm not familiar with. I don't know if Brian is. I am not. And uh, you also bring up new types. There's two pieces of terminology that are distinct, but intertwined. There's uh, space noids and space noid means anyone who is born in space. Okay. So that would be like a belter from the expanse. And the converse of that would be an earth noid, someone who's born on earth. And then there's a new type and a new type would be a space noid who has adapted to life in space. And that brings us pretty neatly into, uh, we flash back to our first scene, Xeon Zoom Daikun's okay. Last Night on Moonzo. Can I, can I pause uh, you before we jump into oh, that? Yeah, please. So just, we're sort of talking about influence in terms of media. And uh, since it's a pretty well-read group, uh, I, I'd like to ask the group about these kind of themes that may predate uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, right? So just in history, we are, we've already got stories of revolution of people getting together to cast off the yoke of like authoritarianism. And then which way is that story going to turn? Are we going to exchange one authoritarian leadership for another? Or is there going to be some evolution of humanity towards class consciousness? Uh, One of Neil Stevenson's works, uh, Diamond Age, is very much about that. I've forgotten what Diamond Age is about. It's been a while since I've read that. Well, it's about um, hierarchy versus collectivism, mm. like what a top-down society can do and what a flat hierarchy society can do. And at least in the view of Neil Stevenson, the flat hierarchy society will eventually win because people are more empowered. Like there's less resources going to the top. That means there's more resources going to everyone else. Yeah. The the only other example that I could think of was from comic books uh, written by Jim Starlin, uh, Dreadstar, where there's like a religious monarchy. They're trying to overthrow that, but then the threat is a military dictatorship replacing it. So you're just replacing one authoritarian rule with another. There's a, another sci-fi book series, Red Rising. That sounds familiar. Essentially, it's it's kind of like a solar system wide one government caste system, and then a, a revolution of of kind of like some of the lower castes against the upper castes. It was something I was like thinking about, like how would you adapt it? And I think it would have to be like a super long TV series or like actually it'd be a really good anime. <laughs> mm. All right, Sunrise. 
uh, contact <laughs> us for our pitch. Yeah. Red Rising. The one that jumped out at Ursula de, Ursula le, le, Ursula K. Le Guin? Yeah, the dispossessed. So you basically had a anarchist society versus a capitalist society. And it was, it's been a while since I've read that book. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Okay, so we meet our prophet, our revolutionary leader, our philosopher king, Zeon Zoom Daikun. And we'll learn that within the colony of Munzo, which will become Zeon. So we get to see him not at his greatest point, uh, actually at one of his lowest points where he's preparing for a speech the next day. And he asks his wife, Astraya, to look over his uh, speech. But before she can even take it out of his hand, he like... This is wrong! Loses it, drops all the papers on the ground and realizes this isn't what I want to say. I'm trying to make a declaration of war against uh, the Earth Sphere government. And what he's written here is just a request for more autonomy. He looks a bit like many German and Russian philosophers of the late 19th century, early 20th century. We get a little bit of Marx here in his uh, radical new philosophy. And we also get a little bit of characterization of Lenin as a successful revolutionary. We don't know about if there was violent conflict that brought about the greater autonomy of Munzo. But through Zeon's efforts, they have greater self-rule than other colonies when it comes to the Earth Federation. Uh, So I imagine to a lot of Western listeners, we're hearing Marx and Lenin, and those are just two communists and they're the same. In what way are they different? Well, first of all, Marx is uh, Prussian, right? Uh, So he's proto-German. He is the founder of the political philosophy called historical materialism, um, which is kind of the same as what people would call Marxism today. Like historical materialism is a little more specific. Marxism is a little more generic. And and Marxism is not the same as communism? No, no. This is a lot to explain. (laughs) Sorry. The differences between socialism, communism, and Marxism. Now, let me know if I've got this wrong, John, but Cliff Notes version, communism is any movement towards a communist society, and a communist society would be a moneyless, classless society. Right. So the idea of a a grouping of people where everyone is considered equal. I mean, I I always put it this way, working class ownership of the means of production. Marx, and I think a lot of revolutionaries over the years, believed that socialism is the best route towards a communist society. Yeah. Oh, and Lenin, Vladimir Lenin was a revolutionary, nationally a Russian, uh, who actually spent a bunch of time in Germany before coming back to Russia to lead a revolution and become the first uh, uh, leader of the Soviet Union. So if I can just tie this to episode one specifically. So like, so this is the dark night of the soul for Daikun, and he doesn't get to deliver his message that he wants to. And this is kind of where like Alex and I, our perspective might differ from uh, John and Ben because I know what's coming. Like I've actually... Mm-hmm read Tycoon's speech that he was going to deliver. And I kind of understand where he's going with new types and like an evolution of humanity an evolution of consciousness. And that there's something that will eliminate the, the things that separate people like classes. Right? Mm. And maybe this is the metaphor, an evolution of humanity or say an evolution of class consciousness 
right? Now there's these divisions that can be uh, removed from the equation and we no longer need a federation or this type of economic system or these kind of class divisions. Mm -hmm. So he's at the end of his rope. He's having this crisis. um, And it seems to be because he does not, he, he doesn't have the time to write the words that he needs to express his grand message to the rest of humanity. But it's not quite that simple, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he starts to, in his madness, he starts to characterize himself very specifically as Jesus. What? Um, He says, they will drag me to Golgotha. In Christian belief, um, it's a hill that supposedly Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on. So is he being poetic or is he having a legitimate vision of his own death? So I, I wanted to hear specifically with, from John and Ben about this. So we're watching this scene, like what's your impression of this guy? Alex and I, I think we have a little bit more context, which colors our perception of what's happening. When I watched it the first time, I'm like, what is this dude's deal? <laughs> Why is he so intense, man? What's um, with that beard? I know. Uh, yeah, he comes off very intense and yeah, like kind of like he's in the middle of, of some sort of like nervous breakdown yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't until I watched it a second time when I caught the whole emancipation thing, but the dude is still intense. Mm-hmm. And and then there's like kind of the weird scene too of him like, you know, he wants to see his kids. The wife tries to stop him because they're like sleeping in the middle of the night, which, which does make it seem a little bit like maybe this is like a little bit of a mental illness thing going on here. Like, like that kind of a scene. And then you get, you know, little Astria who's like glowing angelically. Oh, Artesia. Artesia, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So Astria is the mother and Artesia is the daughter. So, you know, he picks up Artesia and yeah, she's literally glowing and, you know, really highlights her blonde hair and her blue eyes, which is a little weird. I think it's very purposeful. And now this is a little bit of conjecture, but what I think is happening is, yes, he is having a nervous breakdown and he is having a vision. They are one in the same uh, experience. He's seeing the vision of his death and he's extremely distraught over this because he feels like he will not be able to give enough to the next generation. And so he goes to his next generation, his children, and that is what calms him. Interesting. Um, It actually brings him out of this manic state and allows him a semblance of peace. And it does highlight Artesia's hair and eyes, the same as their mother. So I thought it was a characterization of the mother has given them these physical characteristics. So what has the father given them? Okay, that's deep. Uh, Oh, okay. So he characterizes himself in his madness as Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, And in Christian belief or many sects of Christian belief, uh, the mortal Jesus and uh, God, the father are two aspects of the same being, right? When he enters the room, there's a cat. It's Artesia's cat. And we'll learn later in the episode that this cat is named Lucifer. And as he enters the room, Lucifer recoils from his presence and hisses at him as if to tell us he is ascending. I, I did not even catch on to that. I was like, why is the cast named Lucifer? That's weird. Our next scene, we get a sweet title card. Uh, we learn that it's Universal Century Year 0068. I think this year was intentionally chosen because in 1868, that's the year that a 15-year-old Emperor Mutsuhito declares the Meiji Restoration, which triggers a one-year conflict known as the Boshin War. It's kind of a quick scene. 
Zeon convenes the, the Congress of Munzo. He goes to make this speech. Seemingly before he can get a word out, he has a heart attack. Um, there's a lot of composite happening with this show, right? We're seeing the development of like revolutionary ideology and some things that parallel like the Russian Revolution. And then we see Daikun and it's like, oh, is he like Marx, Lenin, a Japanese emperor? So I think, Alex, it's the way you put it, like there's not exactly a one to one allegory. Yeah. Daikun is a whole bunch of uh, historical figures kind of rolled into one. Mm. He dies right before this speech, which throws the political scene into chaos because now there are these political factions that need to think about who the next leader is. And we have a increasingly upset public that begins to riot outside of the gates of uh, the Congress building. And then uh, we move right along to a scene of identifying uh, Zeon's body in front of the Zabi family. So it's Kasval, um, Artesia, and uh, Astrea to identify their father's uh, husband's body. And they are paraded in front of the people in power, almost like lambs being led in front of a group of wolves. And there's a bit of characterization here where Kasval lies to Artesia, saying that it's okay, it's going to be nothing dad will be fine, which momentarily comforts her. But then when they see the dead body, it ultimately enhances Artesia's trauma. It seems really disrespectful to me. That should have been a private moment, uh, but it's just like the demonstration of uh, the Zabi's influence and control of the whole situation. Mm -hmm. So these riots start in the street and we get agent provocateurs within the front line of protesters that start to yell about the Federation having assassinated uh, Zeon Zoom Daiku. by the Federation! The Federation is Daiku's enemy! Leads me to believe that the Zabi family has already paid people off or sent their own agents. But, but this is this is just your conspiracy theory, right? Does the does the show do anything to lead us to believe that? Uh, yeah, there's a scene just coming up. Strategic leaks to make everyone think that Daikun's death was a Federation assassination. We're beginning to work. I don't know if if you guys watched Death of Stalin, but. Now, the way Alex has described that, it just feels like all of the crap that went down when Stalin died. All of the kind of sketchy backstabbing. Mm -hmm. And there's some echoes of uh, the death of Lenin as well. In the power vacuum that Lenin left when he died, there are two clear successors, Stalin and Trotsky. And Stalin was a much more militaristic, much more cruel uh, successor. And Trotsky was a consummate critic of Stalin, even before Stalin took power. Yeah. And we get that same kind of parallel in Degwin Zabi, the patriarch of the Zabi family, and Jim Baral, the wonderfully bearded uh, leader of the Rawl family. Well, yeah, we see it in Japan too, like when the Shogun Tokugawa dies, like all the lieutenants <laughs> start scheming and some of them do it politically, some of them do it militarily, but it's chaos. You, you know, the irony though, is that even that's, that's corporate politics too, though. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't even have to be like communist or socialist or whatever. Just go to any freaking corporation and watch what happens at the CEO level. It's like, ugh. Oh yeah, it's just like aristocratic families. When the leader dies, the most important political act is to secure the blood successor of that leader. 
And this is the conflict that we see happen immediately. Degwin Zabi goes to talk to uh, Astrea and tells her that as Daikun's oldest comrade, my family is at your service, hmm. which is code for you're under our protection, also under our control. And hearing that, Jim Baral springs into action and tells his son and closest confidant, Ramba Ral, who we will all love soon, we have one thing to do, and that's to get them out of here, out of the hands of the Zabi. We need to get them back to the Rawl estate. And that's exactly what happens, yeah. right? So this also addresses like what Ben was bringing up in terms of where blame is being laid. To me, this looks, again, like the factions pre-World War II in Japan. Uh, we have various agents not working in unity. They all have their own agendas, doing their own thing. Like Sasuro is trying to pin this on the Federation. Later, we'll see Kaecilia uh, trying to pin it on the Rawl house. And then Jamal Rawl, he has his own agenda. He's trying to protect the royal family. Mm-hmm. And, and we see, just as a lot of people feel about the death of Lenin, we see this uh, liberatory movement uh, that is meant to elevate people be passed to just another authoritarian right. that seeks to use this message to drum up national military enthusiasm. On the way to the Rawl estate, Ramba, uh, his uh, caravan is stopped by protesters. He fires over their heads, but to no avail, they're not going to move. But before he can do anything super rash and just gun down a bunch of civilians, we get this wonderful scene of Kaecilia Zabi wearing like a winged Valkyrie hat on top of a red-eyed demon-looking horse, just riding in to ostensibly save them. And actually... We characterize Kaecilia quite well here that she is at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And she also plays the long game. She's very into politics and the subtle ways. Uh, so she saves them and seemingly asks nothing in return, says, you can go on your way. We're happy to help out uh, Zeon Zoom Daikun's progeny. She's all about the visuals too, right? She She's great at posturing and the bit of theater that she... Yeah, uh, even um, uh, Lady Estrella actually comments on that. You cut quite the imposing figure, <laughs> which she says, oh, that's just how all zombies look. We're all just very <laughs> tall and beautiful. <laughs> Giren's pretty freaking crazy looking. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to act two, which Brian has wonderfully titled Rise of the Zombies. Okay, so Sosro is, yeah, he's yelling about all the work he's done, making sure that the public thinks it was a Federation plot, and he thinks that Kaecilia letting the uh, rightful heir to the Daikun family go is a inexcusable offense. It's a quick scene, but we get some really, I thought, very awesome characterization. Um, we have Giren, his disinterest, his sociopathy, just sitting in the corner. Um, and then we have Dozel. He seems to be a highly compassionate, sensitive individual. He's in touch with the needs of both of his uh, siblings there. He actually stands up for Kaecilia. But when Sasro and Giren start to talk about further plans and walk away, he actually abandons her. Because as much as he does feel for his sister, he doesn't want to be part of the out group with her. It's still more important for him to be accepted, which probably comes from his insecurities. Can, can you explain to me, though? Like, so why? To me, it feels like there's two things going on, right? There's kind of this infighting between the Zabi family and the 
Daikun's family. Yeah, or the Rawls, right? Mm -hmm. They have like an alliance, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's like the thing with the Federation. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand what the infighting has to do with like rumors about whether or not it was the Federation's fault or something, right? Like to me, it's almost like, oh, Cecilia helping Mm -hmm. them would lead credence to the fact that it wasn't the Zabis assassinating him that it was the Federation assassinating him. Yeah, I think you're right. And Kaecilia is uh, well aware of that level of nuance, that subtlety. But Sosro and the rest of the brothers have little uh, understanding and little interest in that kind of thinking, which shows that she's actually the smarter one, which due to the sexism, which is Mm. uh, still present, uh, you know, we're supposed to be like, a hundred years in the future, but it's still there. Space sexism. Yeah. <laughs> she still has to be stronger, faster, and smarter just to get the minimum amount of attention mm. and respect that her brothers are getting. And we see that as soon as they turn their back on her, that's when the blood runs out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. And you see that it's a lot of blood. Yeah. So it's like a hyperbolic equivalent to like holding back tears. And then once they're gone, she's like, okay, that's fine. Like blood spilt now. Yeah. I think she starts to de- de- defend her thinking. Like, did you want to start a war with the Rawl house? Like the Rawl house is very powerful. The, the Moonzo defense force, it's not like the American military that we're thinking of with this iron specific hierarchy. Like it's much more like the Japanese military pre-World War II. Like there's factions. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's very likely that Kaecilia like oversees her own group of soldiers. <laughs> On horseback. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's very true. And so in the absence of fealty to Zeon or Daikun, it, it reverts back to their more immediate superiors. Um, so a lot of people would still follow Jim Baral or especially Ram Baral mm-hmm. because he's like in the field commanding people. Yeah. So we quickly move past that to uh, Daikun's funeral, uh, which is pretty quick, um, but we get some cool shots there. We have a young Kasval uh, showing his military uh, precision, his respect for his father's position. We've already seen this, the beginnings of the split between these siblings, Kasval and Artesia. Artesia still trusts her brother. Um, and so she even tries to mimic the little salute. And we get our first glimpse of Garmin, who is kind of like his brother Dozel. He's the youngest member of the Zabi family, and he doesn't really fit with the rest of the siblings. Um, one, because of his youth, and two, because of uh, he might be gay, he might be, I mean, he's young in this scene, but he takes a, a quick interest in Kasfal, uh, which will flourish into more character development later in the series. His reoccurring tell is like playing with his bangs with his finger, twirling it. Mm-hmm. Um, love and his purple so hair. Kasfal becomes that soldier that we saw in the cold open with the mask and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he will eventually change his name. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. And is that true of this son of the Zabi family that he's going to become kind of important person in his own right. Absolutely. Um, He will be an integral part of the plot and a very, uh, a very important part of Kasval's development. Yeah. I don't know if this uh, clarifies or makes it more confusing, but Degwin, who is now seizing power uh, has five children from, I think at least three different wives and the youngest Garmin. Like if, Degwin becomes sovereign, which he does, then Garmin is the one who will be the next sovereign, not Girin or Kaecilia. 
unless something changes, right? Because whatever the wife situation is, like Garma's it. And we'll see, that leads us pretty neatly actually into the very next scene in the car convoy going from the funeral. We see Dozel uh, riding with Sosro and as Sosro builds himself up into like a fever pitch of emotion, suddenly there's an explosion. The whole car is engulfed in flames. Uh, it kills Sosro and grievously injures Dozel. We get that awesome weird shot of like, how tough is this guy? <laughs> it's like the Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Right before the car bomb goes off, we get a short shot inside of the car behind them, which is filled with Kaecilia and Garmin. And we see Kaecilia give a little smile right before the bomb goes off. And then we get this cool shot of Sosro's flower that he was wearing on his lapel floating down from the explosion and as it floats down it loses a couple of petals uh and we see that kaecilia is very into her own agency she had that bomb planted right oh yeah yeah so this was the scene that started me thinking about my pet theory that uh, the zabi children represent at least in part the different factions that emerged prior to world war ii in japan I mean, you've got these different factions that are like running into the Imperial diet with a sword to impale their opposition or literally doing a car bomb to eliminate some of their opposition. The faction you thought that Kaecilia represented, was it the Black Dragon Society? Yes, indeed. They were known for their use of bombs to take out political opponents, right? Yeah. Uh, and they later became like their own sort of secret police. I'm, I'm familiar more of this happening in the Japanese side of things, but do you does this seem familiar to the rest of you? Like whether it's a Russia or some European play for power. Stalin was way into bombing well, things. Yeah. Uh, super <laughs> yeah. into the dynamite. Super into uh, disappearing people. Yeah. Yes. So like in Germany, would that be sort of like the night of the long knives? Uh, no, that, I think that is a little more involved. Um, and that's specifically dealing with how fascists, get a big tent of different political ideologies to follow mm -hmm. them. Yep. And then once they have power, doing away with the ones that disagree with them on different points. Exactly. Although anybody who doesn't know the Night of the Long Knives, look that shit up. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so we get a quick scene uh, at the Rawl estate. Ramba, has, you know, he successfully extricated the Daikun family to the Rawl estate. Um, and Jimba is berating him like, we need to move, we need to strike back. And he's complaining about the press doing the bidding of Degwin Zabi, right? Again, kind of similar to Trotsky, right? He would write a bunch of articles and uh, criticize any time that Stalin did anything. But because of the tight hold that Stalin's authoritarian regime had over political discourse in the country, you could not print a word against the Zabi family. You could not print against the word against Stalin himself, right? That seems like the Zabis replicating the Federation again, because uh, when someone speaks out against the Federation, if they're on earth, they get deported to one of the colonies. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Interesting. Ramba goes to see the Daikuns and is asked a very special uh, favor from Artesia to go retrieve her cat, Lucifer, from their old house. And we see that, I think this is the first time, but we see Astrea dressed in blue. 
Artesia dressed in red and Kasval dressed in purple, which will come up again soon. We go to the Zabi estate where there's a meeting between Kaecilia and Girin. And we see, again, the juxtaposition between the two of them. Girin is playing a game of Go, right? Which is an intricate, high cerebral level game. But it has very clear rules. It has black and white outcomes as, you know, illustrated by the black and white pieces that populate the board. But Kaecilia is not about black and white thinking. She is, again, about the subtle, about the intricate, about biting her time, biting her tongue, and waiting for the moment that she can seize the power she knows she's destined for as she thinks she's the most talented and strong-willed of all of the zombies. But uh, the Giran is also holding a book about Go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like he's looking up moves or something. Like he's not playing according to his own brilliance or whatever. <laughs> um, we move along to our first scene at Club Eden which is a favorite hangout of Romba Rall. And it is also the former place of employ of Astrea Daikun. Uh, we see that the riots have evolved past disorganized property damage and into organized gangs of politically affiliated thugs. Uh, Ramba is stopped outside of the club and asked, what side of the conflict are you on? Are you one of those Rawls? But he just makes like he's drunk and they let him pass, right? And inside we meet, or on the way in, we meet Tachi. And Tachi is a, a, a type of sword similar to a katana, but coated differently. The curvature is slightly different. Uh, the length is usually different, but it codes him as a weapon to be used. Mm -hmm. And then inside the bar, we meet uh, a very important character who will become very important to Rambaral, and we learn that is already important to him, at least emotionally. Hamon, you've been requested. I, I really liked this scene, the the Club Eden scene. I don't know, it, it gave me a little bit of like kind of Casablanca vibes. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like French underground resistance, the impression is the civil unrest isn't one-sided. There's different groups uh, in conflict with each other. Those that are loyal to the Rawls, those that are loyal to the Zabis. For whatever reason, the first time I went through it, I was just like, oh, everyone's angry at the Federation. But I guess it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So there's this civil unrest like after the death of Zian Daikun. I think maybe I was just kind of like, like, oh, it's just like mobs of people. I don't know. I, I do feel like now when I see mobs of people and stuff in media, like after the last year or two in the US, mm. I kind of like see it differently. I don't know if you guys have, <laughs> have had that, but I have like, I think a much more like visceral reaction to protests turning violent, mm -hmm. where it's almost like I see this media from years ago and it almost feels like it's like commentary on stuff that we've been going through. And then it's like, oh no, this is just like a human phenomenon that hasn't felt very like close to me for much of my life. Yeah. Maybe that is coloring my experience of this, this particular episode. I'm used to seeing protest groups like on the news happening in other countries. And yeah, I've seen like the women's March or something, but what we've seen in 2020 is very different, right? There's now this other level of 
uh, unidentified soldiers putting people into unmarked vans. And and so when he goes to the to the club Eden, like there's that guard who's like moonlighting there. Kachi. So is that like a little like political hideout for like their faction or something like that? And he's just trying to. Yeah, it's, it has a history. So Club Eden is where uh, Daikun and Degwin and Rosa Lucia and uh, Jamba Rao were first meeting and talking about politics and forming their vision. It's where they staged the revolution from. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's where he met his wife as well, Australia. So, so what happens then after we get to, to Club Eden? Kaecilia goes to the Rawl estate to confront or to bully Kosval. She shows up with her Valkyrie helmet on, uh, seemingly just so she can take it off at the gate as like a sign of not contrition, but I don't know. I guess that's a, as good a word as I'm going to come up with right now. And when she comes inside, she does not want to talk to Ramba. She does not want to talk to Jimba. She only wants to talk to Kasval. So we're seeing that Kasval is already, not only is that family this like political prize for the warring factions, but the mantle of leadership is already de facto being put on the eldest son. Kosval is like this 10, 12-year-old kid. And where you would think Jimbo would be able to step in and say, no, I'll meet with you. I will negotiate on behalf of them. Or at least the mother, Astrea, would be able to say, no, 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 my son is recovering from the death of his father. He's in no position to do that. Instead, Kosval relies on his own agency and expresses his willingness to meet with Kaecilia. And I thought this scene was actually kind of perfect. There's no two better characters to have this scene, to have this conversation <laughs> with each other. Yeah, I liked the contrast uh, between Kaecilia and Kosval here. Kaecilia is pacing and doing grand gestures as she's talking. And Kosval is just, he seems just very confident and grounded. Mm-hmm. You know, he just plants himself there. Maybe this is kind of where we see him shine for the first time. Like he's been in a lot of scenes, but he hasn't really had any agency. And then here you're just like, oh, like who is this kid? Which which I guess is maybe from Caecilia's perspective, like who the fuck is this kid? Like, yeah, she cuffs him mm-hmm. and threatens him, threatens the whole family. And then he's like, no, that's not the situation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the son of Daikun, and you're all going to be bowing one day. And there's no tremble in his voice, and he does not break eye contact. It's That's his reality. And I think it foreshadows what we'll see he's capable of uh, not too much later in the show. Mm. Yeah, very soon. So there's a an agreement struck between the two of them. There will be no retaliation against the Rawl family. And in return, the Daikuns will go to live at a supposedly neutral uh, location, which is Daikun's uh, family home. But when we arrive there, it is presided over by the matriarch, Madame Rosalusia. Oh, I had no idea idea you'd be here, Madame Roselcia. Why wouldn't I be? By implication, we're learning that Astrea is not Daikun's wife. Astrea is like more like a concubine, which is very common then. You would have a political marriage and then you would have a concubine for love or for children. Uh, Rosalucia hates Astrea, yeah. not because of really who she is, but because what she represents to Rosalucia. She represents all of the potential 
that her and Daikun's relationship didn't have because of her unfortunate inability to bear children, which doesn't have to define someone's existence, right? Definitely doesn't have to define someone's uh, womanhood, but Rosalucia is trapped by that tragedy. And, and so I, I wonder, is there something similar going on with the Zabi family in that, like, that's why that one kid is like the heir Armin. because he's like the son of the proper wife versus the current wife. Correct. And I think that is a thing with Japanese history, right? That like emperors and leaders like that would have multiple wives. And there's kind of like the legitimate wife that the line goes down through. And then there's like illegitimate wives, which were still like documented and kind of everyone knew, but succession wouldn't be transferred through them. Yeah. It's actually kind of reflected in the uh, Japanese game Shogi. It's like the Japanese version of chess. So there's a king, and then there's two concubines, a king, queen, a concubine, and a concubine. <laughs> Very powerful pieces. Just imagining now, if, you know, instead of having bishops in chess, we just had like concubines. And... <laughs> yeah, Better than bishops. They suck. <laughs> we see one of these little moments that tragedy and like a lot of hardship could have been averted. Uh, Rosalucia goes into a coughing fit when she works herself up over how angry she is at Estrella. And she almost has seemingly a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And Estrella does not call for help. If only (laughs) a few more minutes had passed. Uh, This tragedy of these children being separated from their mother could have been avoided. But alas... The help comes in and they give her her, I assume it's uh, uh, nitroglycerin, but some kind of medication and it it calms her down. It saves her. I, I was wondering, too, it, it kind of reminded me of Daikun's death. And for a second, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. did she just get poisoned, too? Or like, is there some emerging illness or, or something like that? OK, so that that's interesting. So that there was something I was really fuzzy about is like. What it, what is Madame Rosalucia's station here? Like, she was part of the inner circle with Degwin and Daikun and Jamba, but she has some level of power over the household because she's Daikun's wife. But I don't think she has any political power beyond that household. All right, that makes sense. So we learn that Ramba and Haman are working on a plot. Ramba wants to get his father off of Munzo, the colony, because he thinks that if uh, Jimba uh, remains there, the zombies will kill him. I don't know whose idea, if it it was Haman's or Ramba's, but they decide together that they will also send the children of Daikun with Jimba. Um, and he will act as kind of a caretaker for them. That Jimba dude seems like, I don't know, he's like crazier than uh, Zeon was at the beginning. He's just like constantly freaking out. They're not going to take me down without a fight. Well, I think he's very in tune with what the zombies are about and what they can do. And if it comes to that, I'm going to take Digwin with me. Right. And, and Ramba has a little bit of distance. So he acts more rationally coming up with an actual plan. Mm. Whereas Jimba just stockpiles a bunch of weapons. Like he's going to be fucking Scarface. Like with an AK-47 <laughs> shooting up the police as they come to raid his house. I love this shot. We see his arsenal he's built up and we're in the future, right? We have spaceships. We have colonies that grow food on them. We have all of these technological advancements, but personal munitions are still guns, rocket launchers, uh, solid munitions, Mm -hmm. as if to tell us that humanity cannot outgrow this. 
Mm. We cannot uh, move on from our need to kill one another to establish our, our own ideals. That's dark. Yeah. And just as we see that there is this hope that's coming up, we also get our moment of deepest despair in the episode. We learn of this plot to get them off of the planet. And then in the very next scene, we learn that it will be impossible to get all three of them or all four of them off the planet. Lady Astraea is given an edict that she will reside in the tower. And there's this tower in the middle of a lake with like a walkway to it. She will live there and the children will not live there with her, which is really heartbreaking. Um, the, the scene that really got me was um, when Lady Estrella is explaining the situation to the kids, trying to calm Artesia. No, 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 not going to earth. Casval sees right through it, but he doesn't spoil it. He lets the mom do her thing with a hundred moons. When you're on Earth, you'll be able to see stars in the sky. The biggest and roundest one is the moon. I want you to count each time it shrinks down to half, gets really skinny, then grows to be a round, full circle again. After it does that 100 times, I will come. So wait for me, all right? But man, like, it just looks like he's going through hell, but he's going to stay calm and composed for the sake of his sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that imagery of the hundred moons. Also, I guess, you know, just like her up in a tower, there's something that feels very mythic about that. You know, it's, it's very like Rapunzel or yeah. something or different parts of this, like reminded me a little bit, not in direct ways, but of like the Odyssey and stuff like that. You know, I think they always refer to blue eyed Athena, that was maybe the closest thing to a direct reference. Um, hmm. Can I tell you guys who Astraea is in Greek mythology? Yes. Okay, so uh, Astraea literally translates to star maiden. She's the virgin goddess of innocence, purity, and precision. Okay. Which might give us some clue as to, in addition to physical characteristics, what she has given to her children. Mm. So she's considered a goddess, but she comes from the progenitors of the gods, the Titans. Uh, Astraeus, who's the personification of dusk, right? We get one last night with her. And Eos, the personification of dawn. Um, so she's the synthesis of the nighttime, right? Mm. And she was the last of the immortals to live with humans during the golden age. Um, oh, amazing, right? According to Ovid, Astraea abandoned the earth during the iron age, which is kind of what we're coming up into an age of iron and age of warfare, uh, fleeing from the new wickedness of humanity. She ascends to the heavens to become the constellation Virgo. Uh, the nearby constellation Libra reflected her symbolic association with Dike, who is Latin in Latin culture as justitia uh, is said to preside over the constellation. In the tarot, the eighth card, Justice, with a figure of Justitia, can thus be considered related to the figure of Astraea. <laughs> and according to myth, Astraea will one day come back to Earth, bringing with her the return of a utopian golden age of which she was the ambassador. So according to myth, according to this story, after a hundred revolutions of the moon, she'll come back and be with her golden-haired children. Oh my gosh, I got goosebumps <laughs> all over me. <laughs> I, I was I was wondering if you know later on the the children would be 
trying to return to retrieve her from this tower still. Or... I love the mythological background. And did, I don't know if I heard that right. She was the last of the gods to live with the mortals. With humans. What yeah. does that mean? Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about people of the revolution, right? We're talking about these bigger than life figures. And she's the last one to really be with them. Everyone else is still <sighs> living above them or uh, distant from it. That is so much more robust than where my mind was going. <laughs> I, I, I just, I was thinking about the fairy tale imagery, like the tower. And I was thinking right. of this like childhood's end thing. Like there's no knight coming to rescue you. And spoiler, like we, there's a knight that appears in our next episode and he's not coming to rescue anyone. <laughs> hmm. Man. Yeah. The lie she tells to Artesia makes me cry every time. Uh, I think we all had a, a, a visceral reaction to that. And both of their parents are punished in this episode, maybe for their arrogance, maybe for their hubris. Daikun is assassinated, but his punishment is nothing mm. compared to Astraeus Astraea. because he gets to die. He doesn't have to feel this anymore. But Astraea has to stay in that tower knowing that her children are alive. And Artesia writes a letter every day and she never gets the letters. <laughs> what the fuck, man? Yeah. So this is Resolutia just getting revenge on um, Estrella for being the husband's concubine. Mm -hmm. For being the love of his life, for being the, the mother of his children. Uh, it, it, it's petty. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of like, it's a little bit like we had some of that theme in Evangelion, right? With the lovers of Gendo and the older lover kind of taking it out on the, the younger lover. Yeah, absolutely. And that cycle of abuse continuing. Yep. Comes up a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. so after that night tower scene that we get kind of the next morning and this uh, military dispatch shows up to mm -hmm. take the children. But surprise, yeah. uh, who is it? It's Gendo. It's Haman. Broly. Children <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she shows up in a Federation uniform, news to us. Uh, and we, we start to get like, oh, Haman is very competent at everything she does. So I, I feel like I want to insert something that's maybe headcanon or just some kind of Brian speculation. But like uh, when we first see Club Eden and Ramble Rawls making small talk with the gang there, and they're like, no, we would never do anything for the Federation again. But if you got something going on, Ramble, like maybe we'll help you out. So the, the only thing that I had that might reinforce that was uh, just a little bit of like Gundam history. So like Daikun, uh, like his writings go way beyond Munzo. Like all the colonies had access to them. Uh, it makes it to Earth. It's the kind of stuff that like college kids might pick up and be like, oh man, so I've read Daikun in my first year or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it's part of what starts to like radicalize Munzo, like to keep Daikun's writings from spreading. Like there's these political things that happen and the Federation's largest garrison is stationed at Munzo in their backyard. But then like the turn of events is that um, soldiers of the Federation garrison on Munzo try to play nice and uh, don't really want to do too much to cause friction with like the Munzo defense force or the various factions that might put a bomb in your car or whatever. <laughs> so I didn't know, like, did Lady Haman just steal a uniform 
or like did she actually have legitimate connections with some Federation people. She has to have connections to actual Federation people because they don't just commandeer a Federation vehicle. They commandeer a gun tank. (laughs) There are still regular tanks, but there are also these super weapons, which are the progenitors of the mobile suit technology that will take hold in the coming episodes that we saw a glimpse of at the beginning of this episode. And the two pilots, I assume that they are Federation officers. They're the actual ones in charge of that gun tank. And she was able to bribe them with enough money that they would uh, risk a court martial. To reinforce that, Xeon aren't the bad guys. Federation aren't the good guys. They're just forces Mm -hmm. populated with people. These guys, the same kind of guys who might take a bribe to betray their own faction, might also be the kind of people who might, I don't know, threaten to rape a woman at gunpoint. And don't you want to know more about Haman now, after we see how she handles that? Not even phased. Instead, she says that she's in the know. She's the one still in control and power. One of them pulls a gun on her and she's like, you know that we're in an armored vehicle, right? If you shoot a gun and it hits a wall, it will ricochet, you moron. So do you want to kill yourself or do you want to do the thing I already paid you to do? Yeah, he's the one panicking. Uh, Four gun tanks head them off in the middle of a very wide street. But we see that Kasval is preternaturally good at seemingly all forms of combat, but specifically this kind of mechanized, uh, highly technological combat. And not only is he good at it, but he feels Mm -hmm. a sense of agency. He has no problem advocating for his own survival over the survival of these opponents. Yeah. So so is he a new type? Is that, or whatever it's called? Is he one of those mutants? Is that why he has that? ability to just pick that up so fast yeah and we we parallel when amuro ray uh, iconically gets into his gundam at the beginning of metal gear solid <laughs> i'm sorry mobile suit gundam for the first time he is preternaturally able to pilot it without having any prior uh training yeah so that that's exactly what i was gonna comment on we got to see Casval face down Kaecilia, and now he's facing down these other gun tanks. It's like he intuits what's going on. He looks at the control panels, and then we get a shot of his eyes, and we see a reflection of like the LEDs of the control panel in his eyes. And it's like he's made his decision about what he's going to do, and he's going to do it. <laughs> and that's it. And he even vocalizes it, mm-hmm. right? He tells us as the audience, as he's telling his sister. My enemy, your enemy, even mother's, everyone's enemy. Whatever is opposing me, that's my enemy. Which means that whatever I do to overcome them is fine. He can justify any action to himself because he knows that they're the bad guys. Mm -hmm. But we see these almost sociopathic ways of thinking allow him to accomplish what, I don't know, a normal empathic person would stop before they do it. Which makes him as a new type much more interesting and strange uh, compared to all the other new types we're going to meet. And then I guess his sister is the exact opposite, right? So she's the one who kind of breaks him out of this thing that she's doing. She's, you know, thinking about the poor people, those poor people. in those tanks and, and kind of what's happened to him. Mm-hmm. 
that is kind of like an archetype you see sometimes. So I'm thinking Ender's Game has that where he has this brother who's like kind of like a sociopathic killer type, a sister who's extremely, extremely empathetic. And then Ender is actually kind of like the hybrid of the two. He's like somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I don't know if this tangent will be worth it, but like in that future world, it's kind of like an alternate take on the hero's journey where you're not normally allowed to have a third kid, but the first two kids this family had were so close to like being the, like the precocious genius that the military needs that they let them have a third shot Mm -hmm. at it. (laughs) And, and get mm-hmm. Ender. No, you're absolutely right. Twice now we've seen Kasfal dressed in purple while his mother and sister are dressed in red and blue respectively, coding him as a synthesis, right? As something new. But now in this scene, Artesia is dressed in purple hmm. in her witch's outfit, which means that in this scene, at least, she's taking on that uh, that synthesis because her their mother is the source of their empathy. And whereas Kasval is kind of on one end of the spectrum, the mother is on the other. We don't see it quite yet, but you're brilliant, Ben. You touched on something that I missed. Uh, Artesia will become the synthesis between the two of them hmm. as well. Yeah, so I was thinking she was the opposite end, but actually maybe you're saying she's somewhere in the middle well it depends who we're drawing the the spectrum based around if it's just between Kosfal and artesia yes absolutely they're on opposite ends but if we factor in their mother as well then i would say that artesia lies between the two of them hmm. i guess i, I don't want to lose sight of uh rambal rawl's role in in the, the ruse here as impressive as what's going on with Kosfal, uh, i was also really impressed with uh ramba's <laughs> organizing his folks to strategically stop traffic all over the place, <laughs> prevent that situation from getting any worse. And, you know, just how likable his character is like, ah, oh, we got a flat tire. Oh, we don't have a spare. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. smoke this cigarette. Yeah. That was a good little, <laughs> what can you do? Comedic scene. And what do they call it? Like kind of like a, a war of the roses kind of story or like, Oh yeah. Like the politics or intrigue where it's like, you can't fight an all out war. Like everyone knows this is an all out war, but you're still bound to these rules. Like you can't just like run over this car. (laughs) (laughs) Like what Ramba is doing in the streets is almost identical what Kaecilia was doing. Kaecilia handcuffs Kosfal, not because she's going to lead him out in handcuffs, right? She's surrounded by armed Rawl family members, but she does it as a tactic. It's all a ruse, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we get two more moments of... Uh, uh, I don't know. We get two more kind of moments before we end. Um, we have Dozel in the funniest thing in the episode to me. It's horrifying, but he gets so angry at these Federation soldiers. He pops all the sutures on his face um, and just bleeds all over this main guy, which is terrifying. If someone did that to me, I would be like, oh, well, maybe we won't fire on him. We get more insight into his character. Like he is a soldier. Uh, he's about honor and he does not want to fire on children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also specifically like the children of Daikun. Uh, that's just mortifying to him. Again, going back to Japanese military factions, it just, it feels very much like the the Toseha faction. Mm. So like the Bushido code and like the Daikuns that are like the royal family. Um, this is what's right. <laughs> yeah, he really struggles with that. Yeah, but his his little ruse or his yelling at these Federation soldiers 
does give Haman and the children the time they oh, yeah. need to jump off the back of the gun tank. Um, one last moment of characterization there where Artesia, at least for the moment, at least because of her, she's still a child, she's still in this dangerous situation, even though she just had this moment of disillusionment with her brother, she may realize, or, or she may feel, I don't know if she realizes it now, that they are drifting apart mm-hmm in their experience of the world and their ideology, but she still has to trust him for now because she's too small to make that jump on her own. Yeah. So this puts us back with uh, Dozel being on the phone with Giren. Mm-hmm. So Dozel standing there in front of the Federation tanks. And mm-hmm. if I'm in Giren's head the right way, it's better if the Federation blows up this gun tank that has the children of Daikun in it. Mm-hmm. Like he can leverage that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is smart, but I think he lacks a certain care about minutia. Okay, so they do make it to, I think they uh, meet up with Ramba and uh, he drives them the rest of the way. They get to the cargo terminal to get loaded into a, a container and uh, smuggled off of the colony. And we get one last moment of, oh my gosh, will they get off? Uh, as uh, Lieutenant Tachi- ah! has to pretend that there is a cat running around the cargo hold in order to distract the Federation uh, workers from x-raying the container that uh, the children and Jimbar are inside of. And uh, we also have Kaecilia coming up one more time to almost catch everyone, right? But Ramba kind of calls her bluff and says, yeah, you could stop every transport leaving. You could stop all commerce from happening right now. But that's like a lot of hassle. <laughs> and so instead, Kaecilia gets him to agree to come under her custody, I believe. Uh, okay, tail end. We're almost there. They do get in the transport. They do clear the hangar. And Artesia and Kosval exit the cargo container in order to have their first look at the stars without the colony uh, windows in front of them. To give a little context in my head, Koswell is coming off of this adrenaline-fueled killing spree, right? And as he's coming down, he has this transcendent moment where he gets to see not only the stars, but also a fairly unfiltered sun for the first time. And he says to his sister, That light is the source of life. Plants, people, and animals, they all come from that light. Uh, Which is something that bears repeating, it's worth remembering, right? That Earth is not the beginning point of of, <laughs> of the human race. Uh, There's a progenitor before the Earth, right? I, I thought that that scene was really cool because at some point they go into zero G, right? And they start floating. Mm-hmm. And so me not realizing that they're on this like, you know, giant spaceship that is generating its own gravity. I was kind of like, wait, what's going on? Are they already Mm -hmm. in space? Like, I don't think they launched or anything like that. But I guess that was them escaping the centrifugal force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just thought that that was really, that was really cool. That set of slow reveals. So like, just being like, we're being sent to Earth, you know, they're not on Earth, then this thing happening with the zero G, then they like go over to the window, and they look out, and then you zoom out to outside and see where they are and and see the ship. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. 
So I've got the Blu-ray and uh, I didn't see on any streaming services where they would translate the lyrics to the final song, but uh, at least on the disc that I was watching. So the song is the sea of stars and it was uh, really melancholy lyrics. It wasn't like this positive uplifting thing. It's just like everything ends like in the Japanese sense, mono no aware kind of idea. To kind of extrapolate off of Astraya's parting words to her children, right? Telling Artesia that nothing can stay the way it is forever. Not even you. And so not only does everything have to move on, but also everything must end as well. Part of the imagery of the song is like even the stars are, are going to go out. And that's kind of it. Uh, they end <laughs> looking out at this uh, vast ocean of stars. And it's this really transformative moment. Uh, you know, they've just come through this gate of uh, trauma, like specifically violence. And then they literally pass through a cargo gate. And so this is only the beginning of the adventure. You know, we're on to a new part of their existence, a new way of experiencing the world. And them being children is are not just important, but purposeful. We could have covered them at a later point in their life. Uh, but instead, they are transforming uh, physically, age-wise, uh, while their experience of the universe is. Yeah, I, I thought it was really cinematic, too. Yeah, when the the song comes on and, like, the credits start, that, that's kind of a move you don't see often in a TV show. Like, almost mm -hmm. feels more like a movie to have kind of the credits going over while there's still dialogue happening and, and yeah. some plot happening. Yeah, beginning to end, I felt like this was a strong first episode. Yeah, I, I know that this isn't your wheelhouse, uh, Ben. Uh, uh, Brian and I are kind of the geeky ones. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know, having our cake and eating it too, getting to cover this series. Mm -hmm. But uh, I hope you're getting something yeah, out of no, it. Yeah, no, I, I really loved it. I mean, I think, I think the cold open is there for the people who are really the kind of like mecha geeks to like be like, hey, look, we are gonna like, this is gonna happen. And it's it's like an interesting move to do that, right? To have that give people mm -hmm. kind of what they want and then be like, okay, now we're going way back to the beginning. You know, there there still is, there's that one battle in this episode, the, the gun tank battle. Uh, I think when it started, I was like worried. I was like, oh no, it's just like, it's just going to be like combat and whatever. And everything <laughs> was happening so fast. Yeah. But but I loved this episode. Um, I was going to say one thing from the very beginning that we didn't mention. I forget if we talked about it during the actual episode that we recorded or if we talked about it before and afterwards, but the um, German imagery, I guess, or like kind of like, you know, yeah. it was very strange that one of the very first things you see is someone like Sieging, Sieg or something like that, right before dying. Zeon, which literally means victory for Zeon. Yeah, but but just yeah. that word is so tied yes. to Nazism, at least like as an American, that it's like a strange thing mm -hmm. to see early on. And then Soon after that, you have like, you know, the images of these like super Aryan children. Mm. Yeah, I, I still am not sure exactly what to make of that. There's something about it that feels strange. Yeah, I think that's the natural response from, uh, well, I, I guess I'll say from Western eyes. I, I found this thing totally unrelated to our show, but it was just this YouTube video about what do the Japanese people think of when they see the swastika. It's obvious to us, uh, but 
maybe there's just different exposure and different perceptions of World War II for Japanese and people of the South Pacific theater. But like, they're just doing all these man on the streets things. And it's like every different age group. And they're like, uh, I don't know, it's uh, a Buddhist thing. Or, you know, it's like everything but the Nazi flag. With the Buddhist thing, I mean, literally, like, um, on Google Maps in Japan, the symbol to denote something is a Buddhist temple is a Mm -hmm. swastika. But it's the reverse direction, right? Sure, probably. I believe you. And I feel like I've heard that before, maybe. But me looking at them, they're, like, identical. I I feel like unless you're really, like, looking into it, you don't notice that it's, like, flipped. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to channel something, right? Because they're not saying in Japanese, victory to Zeon, right? They're saying Zeke, Zeon. Yes. Oh, yeah. And uh, German iconography, at least in Gundam and some other things that I like, like Jinro, has been used to show the uglier parts of Japanese history. Hmm. So I think this gets back to this idea that there's there's not exactly a one-to-one allegory uh, and it's not a one-to-one use of imagery. Like it's a lot, co- composite of a lot of different things. In addition to the average Japanese person not having the same immediate recognition that like Americans would of like Nazi imagery, the Nazi salute, right? That actually goes back to Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been used in a lot of other cultures as well. And like just what I know about like cultural influences and designing things for anime, it's like, yeah, there is a lot of uh, like pre-Soviet Union imagery from Russia, German uh, they really like using French imagery for some reason in a lot of like fantasy animes. So that's kind of like the box I put it in when I'm looking at this stuff. And I guess we mentioned it in the overview. It's like specifically because I don't see the exact correlation with things like ethnic superiority, nationalism, and whatever else is like specifically Nazi. Yeah, I I, I'm just curious to see where it's going. I don't know, like like some of this stuff, like Zeon's family, I mean, it's interesting. So Zeon isn't himself this like blonde dude, but like the rest of his family, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess we get one other character, Lady Haman, or, but the fact that they're blonde and blue eyed, you know, maybe it's just like cool imagery, <laughs> right? Like maybe it's like the yeah. Japanese version of like exotification or something. These kind of like striking character designs and like these like shots of their blue eyes just seems cool or like you don't see that in anime that often no i mean like i guess like goku sailor moon i don't know now his eyes are blue someone needs to unpack the japanese blonde thing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's true but like even outside of japanese uh media blonde hair especially like a whole family of blonde people is usually used to denote not nazis but aristocracy nobles royals intermarrying right keeping the bloodlines pure yeah and then in the 1980s you just turned into a a jock (laughs) (laughs) yeah so like the the blonde hair blue-eyed thing that'll be less pronounced as we go forward like uh i don't think tomino's saying like the new types are like the aryan master race because like we're gonna start seeing other new types like amuro and mirai and not the haman from this series but like a later one and like Lala, I think looks maybe Hindi somehow. Mm-hmm. We're getting way ahead of ourselves, though. At yeah, this point. yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. You know, two, you have Kaecilia as being like this, you know, like red haired person. So in some ways, you know, maybe it is just like a character design choice to kind of make these factions sort of distinct from each other or like the people who are kind of distinct like have that represented visually in some way as well oh definitely yeah it's a shame we never get to see uh degwin's wives because like looking at the hair colors like karma has purple hair <laughs> guys mm-hmm. has got red hair too bad none of them are bald they don't take after their dad <laughs> So if we wanted to find some of your work, where would we go? Just go to subcarriertransmissions.bandcamp.com. That's me. There's actually another dude named Subcarrier out there. So I couldn't get subcarrier.bandcamp. So it's subcarriertransmissions.bandcamp. Mm. And I'm I'm on Spotify. Very cool. And for anyone who enjoyed uh, at least this episode of the show, uh, is there anything that you'd recommend? The Expanse? What was this Ursula stuff that you guys were talking about? Okay, how do you pronounce her name? Ursula K. Le, K. Le Guin. She was a... a a radical sci-fi writer um I, the book that i was thinking about earlier was the dispossessed which was um hmm. i don't know i take a look at that one i i know a lot of uh leftists like her work because it's kind of i guess it falls into the whole left speculative fiction mm-hmm. is it science fiction or science yeah science fiction yeah it's it's a cool book if you're into that kind of stuff read it all right pen pen pals hello, hello. 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 Hello.